Good evening, good morning, good night, good second breakfast, whenever you are, wherever you are. My name is Laura Gonzalez, and I'd like to welcome you to Lunatic Mondays, the uh, very first bilingual show for CSMP, the Circle Sanctuary Network podcast. And you hear me hesitating there because very soon I'm going to stop saying that it's a bilingual show because within two months, by January, Lunatic Mondays will be only lunatic mondays fear not laura gonzalez will still be doing podcasts on spanish but it will be hosted as paganos del mundo on the pagans of the world show that is on spanish and portuguese here at csmp the circle sanctuary network podcast there's some other changes but they're not out in the public yet so stay tuned but anyway my name is laura gonzalez and i'm very happy today uh, we were laughing a little bit by, behind the scenes because we were saying we're going to give him uh, frequent flyer miles already. We have, of course, Jason Mankey and Astrea Taylor talking about modern modern witchcraft with the Greek gods. So in case you live under a rock and you don't know who they are, it, it could happen. So I'm going to tell you who they are. Uh, Jason Mankey is from the Bay Area, California. Is a third degree Garnerian high priest and a popular speaker at witchcraft events across North America and Great Britain. He also writes for Witches and Pagans and Patheos Pagan. And you can find about his work at www.patheos.com um, slash blogs slash panmankey, P-A-N-M-A-N-K-E-Y. <gasps> Don't make the Mexican spell. Okay. And then we have, of course, the wonderful Astrea Taylor from Dayton, Ohio, and she's an eclectic witch and the author of Air Magic and Intuitive Witchcraft. And she also writes for Pythias Pagan, and you can find more about her on www.astreataylor.com. And i like to welcome you all to the show. Um, hi, Astrea, how are you? This is my first time having you here. And welcome to the show. I hope you feel like home and that this is the first of many. How yeah, are you? Yeah, I love your podcast. So thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And thank you for reminding me that lovely story that we met a few years ago at uh, Pagan Pride. And oh, it was a pagan spirit gathering when it was in Ohio. You were teaching a leadership workshop and we were going around asking, talking about what deities we worked with. And I said, Athena. And you said, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love Athena. And uh, I know people cannot see it because this is a radio show, but I do have a tapestry of Athena right behind me yeah. at this moment. And so, so fill me in since I have made that phase. What brought you into Athena? What, how do you, I'm, I'm assuming that was your gateway into paganism, but so I'm asking you two things at once. I think um, Artemis was one of my gateways into paganism originally. When I was a child, I was reading mythology and I was reading the passage about Artemis and it really struck me. But I think, you know, I'm a kind of person who cycles through deities. They come and they go you know, my relationships with them change, I evolve. And Athena really came to me when I decided to go to graduate school for environmental sciences. 
And she was like, we're going to do this. I'm going to help you through it. You're going to learn some stuff. You know, this is a battle, but you can do it. <laughs> I'm on your side. And then after I graduated, I decided I wanted to write books. And I started writing fiction books because that's one of my passions. I just love stories so much. And she was there with me too, with the creative writing. She stayed with me. So I really have a lot to thank her for because that evolved into writing books for Llewellyn. That is wonderful. And I'm sure um, I was so impressed to hear that you were uh, following Athena because she's one of the greatest, if not the greatest. Uh, little known fact, my name is Sophia and my middle name is Sophia. And I always related back to Minerva, Sophia, Athena. So that, that's, that explained the faith, obviously. But yeah. thank you for sharing that. And Jason, welcome to the show. How are you today? It is so nice to see you again. It's been a very long nine months without you. I think it was March when we talked last. I always yeah. like coming to the show. You laugh at all of my jokes and I don't even have to pay you. Your green room has the best like drinks and snacks of any podcast green room in the greater magical community. And I'm always thankful for that. I'm sure they do because the the drinks on the green room comes from your own rooms. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, true. People people might think, you know, sometimes people think that we do this in the same room and that is not even close because you are in sunny breezy beautiful california and i am in gloomy cold and wet chicago at this moment and Australia is on ohio which i'm guessing is close to chicago's weather yeah it's it's in between a little bit I, I need to point out that on this november day it is cold outside and i've run my heater because i am like California strong when it comes to weather, which means wussy. <laughs> and I get cold easily and I get hot easily. If it's not just 75 degrees, it's uncomfortable. I I hear your pain because coming from the tropics, I'm uh, Mexican from Mexico, you know, it's a thing. Mexican from Mexico. And I started telling people as a joke, you know, I am, uh, I come from the tropics. And then I actually look at the map and remember, like, no, it really is traversed by a tropic. So, but enough about the weather. You guys have gone into this journey of writing a wonderful book. I love it. And I love how direct it is and how it describes from the get-go, this is a book for witches. This is not a history book. This is not a book for, I mean, you have done tons of research. You have a the most amazing bibliography here. But how was the process? As Australia, I'm going to ask you first, because when Jason was here last nine, nine months ago, um, we were talking about the process for him working with Ari, his wife, and the other two folks that are part of writing that, that book. But how was it for you? How did he lure you into it? <laughs> Actually, um, it was one of my and Jason's first conversations when we first met. Uh, I told him I was a writer. He told me he was a writer. We hadn't heard of each other. And that made us both laugh. 
And uh, because don't he was you know a who I am? presenter <laughs> and I hadn't done any research because I had just come off grad school, <laughs> I think. So, um, yeah. And, you know, we both acknowledge that we started out with these Greek gods and they influenced us. They were still a very important part of us. And we hadn't seen a book that really detailed them like we wanted. We never got that juicy book that had all the information that we wanted to sink our teeth into because we both knew that myth isn't the whole story. We'd read enough to, to know some of the cultural history and some of the uh, religious and ritualistic uh, practices of the ancient Greeks. So we were inspired by that, not only to create our own magical stuff, but I mean, Jason was teaching some of that as well. Um, and so we kind of like talked about it every now and then throughout the years since then. And um, it came up again during the pandemic. We it, it hit, and I said, you know, I need a new book project, and and we were talking about, well, I'll write it with, yeah, we can do that. And then we just started talking about how we would get modern devotees to write passages, and how we could write a really good history section, the history section we always wanted to read about, and then some magical parts because we had experiences with deities. So when we were figuring out how to write this book. Jason actually came up with this plan to split the uh, history and the magical sections in half. So we just started like picking one or another, you know, as we preferred them. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then at the end of it, you know, we split them in the middle and did some extra ones that we felt strongly about, like Circe, Nyx. I wrote some of those and he wrote one about Fanes and some other deities, um, that he felt strongly about. And then when it came down to it, we couldn't find people to write about certain deities. And it happened, they happened to be deities that we worked with. So I got to write the passage for Athena. I got to write the magic, um, you know, the devotee passage for Dionysus. And that was really special. And he got to write about Zeus, uh, which was one of his first deities, you know, as a child. I want to say, if I'm remembering that correctly, Jason. Um, and it, it seemed to like fall into place. We found, we were like, oh, it's going to be hard to find some devotees for these deities, but actually it wasn't. We, we happened to like run into people and they're like, oh, I've been working with Hades a lot lately. And we're like, oh, do I have a job for you? <laughs> so, uh, it happened really well. And, you know, the only Olympians that we didn't get passages for are the ones that weren't as celebrated necessarily, um, so we thought that was okay. The editors thought that was okay. And, you know, I wanted to write this introduction, like, this is what the book is about. This is what the book is not about. We understand we're not trying to glorify the, the past and the practices that they had. We're living in the modern era. We're being inspired by the actual history and our modern interpretation on them. And then Jason really wanted to write about the history of the Greek gods. And I was like, you know what, go for it <laughs> because you are really good at that and I don't want to do it. <laughs> so it was actually like a perfect combination. That's how I see it anyway. How different was to write with Astria from writing with your partner and your coven mates, Jason? Writing with Astrea was a lot more like writing with Laura Tempest-Sakroff because we did the Witch's Altar together. And, you know, Astrea and like Tempest, professional author had written books before 
So we just sort of divide up the work and then go for it. You know, there's no rewriting each other for the most part. There's really no supervision of the other person. It's trust because you know that they've been there. And somebody who hasn't written a book before, it's a learning experience and a learning curve. And then learning to write for Llewellyn is kind of its own thing. And yeah, so on my last book, I took a lot more of the writing. And this book was really 50-50 with the writing. It is a great book, and uh, you'd be surprised to know, maybe not, that the first thing that I opened was obviously the chapter for Athena. And so, wonderful. Once again, you know, we're seeing eye to eye. And then, of course, I did that because the minute I got the book, yes, I'm sorry, I got the book early. Don't be jelly. All you have to do is pre order and get it. It's coming out soon. Mm-hmm. But yet, I got the, the book first. Thank you, Llewellyn, for that. And I immediately went to, you know, read about Athena, and then I encounter the personal insights and the magic with Athena. And then I, and then I went to the beginning, right? To how, um, why is it so important that you explain to the reader how this book works, and that you're not trying to reconstruct? the the ancient ways of practicing i think it's because there are people who are doing that and we just want to make it clear um you can learn stuff from our book you can read it we encourage everyone to read it pre-order it buy it (laughs) and everything but um we're not trying to recreate uh an ancient religion or an ancient cultural practice ancient rituals necessarily we're inspired by them but you know we use things that are modern like lighters candles you know, or modern made candles and uh you know heating air conditioning and and uh incense that's manufactured in a facility as opposed to you know ground up by yourself or you know picked by yourself uh so, anyway there are a lot of modern tools and um implements that we use that just are out of place from that kind of an ancient practice. And uh, another thing that's really modern is that we're not advocating for um, animal sacrifice. I'm not saying that the modern Hellenists necessarily are, but it's not really necessary in our modern world. We have institutions where those animals are taken care of. And really they were, um, that was that was part of creating a meal for everyone afterwards so we still have the meal afterward we encourage that kind of stuff but you know we take a very different stance mm-hmm. yeah. Jason? Mo- modern witches aren't reconstructionists you know reconstructionists are people trying to recreate the past or reuse the ritual techniques of 2500 years ago And we're not that. We live in the modern era. And it's important at the very beginning of the book to say this is not a book about reconstructionism. There are books about that. If people are interested, this is a book for people who practice modern witchcraft, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's just important to get that out of the way as as soon as you possibly can. Yeah. A few weeks ago, a few months, probably, Jason, you Uh, made a little video about this big hoopla about cultural appropriation and Wicca and the difference between Garnerian Wicca and cultural appropriation and modern witches. I want you to talk a little bit about that because I love 
love the history journey you take us through on this God's being traveling, borrowed, and larger than Crete or, or Greece, you know? You know, like to put them in their proper context, we call them Greek gods because they really came of age in Greece. The Olympians all got together on Mount Olympus in Greece. But you can go back and see the origins of Zeus in the, the, the steppes of the Ukraine and Eurasia. There are Greek gods who were born on islands and places outside of Greece and then were imported in. And the Greeks were really good about taking in deities from other places and honoring them. There was there was a town that did an annual ISIS celebration. We all know she was Egyptian. And when the Greeks traveled, and they did travel a lot, they traveled to Egypt, they traveled to Italy, they took their gods with them, and they set up shop there. There was no limit to worshiping the gods. You did not have to be Greek ethnically to worship the gods. You could just worship the gods. Um, you know, I have a lot of respect for people from uh, Greece who have decided that they want to recreate practices and things. And as we say in the book, it's important to understand what life was like in ancient Greece and where these gods come from and how they were honored in ancient Athens and Sparta and Thebes. But then they also traveled to the Roman Empire, right? You know, they took on new names, but they kept their mythology. We put them, we used their in the sky, right? The names of the planets come to us from the Roman gods. And in Greece, they were named after the Greek gods. Days of the week in Romance languages. They're here. They're everywhere, right? They just they couldn't be held down. One of the things that I found out that was really interesting while you're researching the book is wherever the tallest mountain was, if you worshiped the Greek gods, that was Mount Olympus. It wasn't the Mount Olympus in Greece. It was just whatever the tallest mountain around you was. So now there's a hill outside my house, which is my Mount Olympus. I think I'll be disappointed if I ever hike all the way up, but it's my Mount Olympus. I don't like to put gods in boxes. It's really important. You know, like we look at the history of the Greek gods, they went everywhere and they liked everybody. So there you go. I love that. And I love the fact that, as you say, you know, their influence is still alive in our everyday pun totally intended on our everyday lives you know the names of the of the gods and goddesses and there are things that are larger than life and cannot be contained or police and there are also cultures that are saying please don't you know this is close practice i love how you talked about um on this video that i was referring to uh that there are things that are not part of witchcraft and that they are hoodoo or voodoo or santeria mm -hmm. or different things that uh they are not wicca because wicca is wicca and paganism is paganism and witchcraft is witchcraft and there's no one label i can hear i can see the wheels turning you want to say something no no it's just you know that 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 whole sort of everything within wicca is cultural appropriation is an argument that's been going around for a couple of years now on social media and they'll be like, my Wiccan friend uses dream catchers. So do Catholics. That doesn't mean that, you know, all Catholics are appropriating dream catchers, right? You know, if somebody's using something they probably shouldn't use. That doesn't mean it's a part of Wicca. That's not, Gerald Gardner didn't use dream catchers in 1958. Of that, I'm relatively certain. Yeah, me too. And then that is one of those things that it is indigenous. Don't touch it. Unless you're indigenous, it has no place 
on your practice. That's my opinion. But anyway, back to this wonderful book. How long did it took y'all to to get it together? As Trey, I keep butchering your name. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. No, you got it. Um, uh, I think that we finished <laughs> we finished writing it, doing the edits about three months ago. So, what two years? I guess. Two, two and a half years. Yeah, I remember our first conversation about it was really when we sat down and like, this is what we need to do was probably September of 2020 or August. Okay, yeah. Like two years. Does that, does that sound right? I think that's about right. I, I remember like, that, but what's that? Okay. It could have been earlier. The, that whole time is really depressing and none of us like to think yeah, about it. During the pandemic <laughs> time, the time is just lost, you know, and that's, that's why I knew I needed a passion project mm, to delve yeah. into. And this was so enticing, you know? something that we and I, he and I had always wanted to go into and research and do. So I'm so glad this came together and it has gotten some good reviews too. Luckily, it's not just something that we love. <laughs> it's something that other people have uh, applauded as well. I love it because I think it's very uh, easy to digest. And as a person that has allergy to um extremely academic research and stuff like that i love it and this is not a secret i've said it a million times uh jason is one of the few people that i can read cover to cover because the way you write is really 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 flavorful you know it's like a, <laughs> and and because i know your voice right. i'm literally hearing you narrate the book so you know uh people don't know that i started following jason from an art article about led zeppelin <laughs> and i read the whole article and i'm like man this guy really makes me read so that's how I, <laughs> I i love it and i love the fact that even though there is a whole lot of research here is not stiff i will say though like this book took extra time to write there are what 500 footnotes in this book the huge bibliography and I find that when you have to write history and you have to footnote your history it does take longer to write so it you know it was like quite an effort I, I remember days during the pandemic going to the bar and having a glass of wine in honor of Dionysus and taking notes about the gods and stuff you know and, and there were a lot of notes to take and that's to get what 2,000 words I think our history section's Australia are like about 2,000 words and At you'd least. have to do a ton of research just to get that small amount of words yeah we bought a lot of books that year like, yeah please <laughs> buy this resources too like hey maybe you should include this here are the pages you know yeah. it was please buy our book to just pay off our life like our book debts <laughs> the books that you bought yeah. I mean I'm not reading I'm not I'm not reading I'm not kidding folks they are like 10 pages of the bibliography true story and hundreds and hundreds of, of, of footnotes so I think I know which god and goddess was your favorite to write right but because I kind of know you a little bit but for those who don't know Astrea who was your favorite goddess to write about but you also got to tell us which one was the least favorite or the most challenging to write about. All right. Well, okay. 
I had a dream about Athena and you've probably read it since you've read the book. Um, uh, and I was having a regular dream. There was like a 3d landscape and then this curtain, the dream just kind of like changed. Like a curtain was lifted. It wrinkled and everything. And then I saw this, um, being this, um, womanish girlish being who was just made of light. And she was just staring at me intensely and I knew it was Athena and she was probing my mind. She was evaluating me, um, assessing me in a way. And then she just kind of smiled and nodded her head and like the curtain fell again and my dream uh, went on. <laughs> so after having that experience with Athena, I mean, that was after I did all the research for her and she was the first one I wrote about too. I just have to say my favorite one was Athena. It was, it was hands down, just so easy because I'd worked with her for so long, but to have this special interaction with her when we couldn't find somebody to write a guest passage about her, we should have asked you now that we know this, you know, <laughs> in hindsight. Um, but yeah, I, it was definitely Athena, but I think that the most challenging one to write about probably was Aries for me. Um, because um, I'm, I'm not really a warful, a worrying person. You know, my Mars is in Libra. I'm a very peaceful kind of person. I, I strive for, you know, against injustices and things like that. And I had to write some of the magical um, parts for, for that. But, um, you know, it, it worked out. And I think that I'm even, I even like that part that I did. And it, it worked out really well, I think. It certainly did. Thank you. Jason, what say you? I made sure that I did not write about my favorite gods, like the history parts of this book. Like, so Estrella wrote the Dionysus and Aphrodite, or Dionysus and Pan history parts, because I'd kind of done that in the Horn God of the Witches and thought it would be redundant. So I ended up writing about some deities that I didn't know very well from a historical perspective. And my favorites to write about ended up being Artemis. I loved that section. I think I think I killed it. I was just like really proud of it. And then Hecate. I'm not a huge devotee of Hecate. I know that like there are people now cursing my name because she's so popular in witchcraft circles. And there are a lot of challenges when it comes to writing about Hecate or Hecate. If you read a book about Greek religion, there is about a paragraph dedicated to Hecate. You know, and... If you read witch material about Hecate, there are thousands of pages dedicated to her. And when we're writing the history sections, we're trying to write uh, from mostly a scholarly perspective for a lot of the early history. So you want to, you know, go to academics who write about the Greek gods. So that was sort of a challenge. And I learned a lot of things in that section. And I was just really happy with how it turned out. The hardest one to write and Estrella and I are both in complete agreement about the hardest deity to write about was Ares. I wrote the history part about Ares and the Greeks did not like Ares. They really wanted nothing to do with him except for Thebes. Thebes was the one city-state that had a really good relationship with him. Even Sparta that was warlike, they kept a statue of, of uh, Ares chained to the ground <laughs> you know it's really different not what you'd expect to to read somewhere so that was that was a challenge and then again sort of like Hecate when you're reading the more scholarly material there's not a lot about Ares he doesn't he doesn't figure in a lot of mythology you know if you really want to have a god of war 
you go to the goddess of war, which is Athena, who had a much higher profile. Ares was just kind of hot-headed. Maybe, maybe you wanted him to fight for you, but you didn't want him to plan that fight. So, yeah, yeah that was a challenge. Hmm, that's interesting to know. So there is something that I wanted to ask you, and this is for my personal benefit. Uh, everybody knows that's why I do podcasts is because I want to learn and learning from the people who write the books is it's a luxury that I get to take. So I can't remember the name now, the Mycenaean goddess, the goddess that is holding the two serpents. The mice. Um, oh, you're talking about the Minoan snake goddess. Yes. yes. I heard from a scholar that that goddess never existed and that some person in Greece created the sculpture and they decided to put the snakes on it and that all the stories about that goddess was there were lies how can conceptions be so far from reality and to hear from a scholar i was really taken aback so that scholar should be slapped in the face i've been to crete uh, i know what's in crete the Cretan snake goddess, we don't have any stories about her. There's no mythology from that space. However, there are enough statues of her that exist. I have seen the statues. They're thousands of years old. They exist. They weren't just put together randomly. The Greeks take their archaeology seriously and don't make shit up, you know. But one of the things about really ancient uh, icons, statues, uh, uh, whatever else, um, you know, paintings, frescoes, whatever else. The consistency in deities is really important. Maybe we don't have a name for a deity like Kernonos, or we don't have a name for the Minoan snake goddess, but we do see a lot of those images and they're very consistent, which then suggests that a deity is involved. Absolutely, she was real. God, yeah. my heart hurts. My I mean, heart hurts. I know, my heard this myself too and um i think that what's in question is the archaeologist who uncovered her and um because maybe there were pieces that were put together i read that as well and um i think that archaeology was really sloppy for a while so there there are legitimate concerns about you know what's real what is uh something an interpretation or what's uh you know assembled by this archaeologist to tell a certain story but you do have to look at, like Jason said, the surrounding evidence and whether that statue is or isn't whole or perfect at the time that they found it, it seems that there's enough evidence to back up um, the whole theory of the snake goddess in general. So you have to take that into consideration too. Absolutely. And it reminds me of the fact that um, like everything in this planet, right? Uh, Archaeology is... Uh color by misogyny and what happened in Mexico City for example all the excavations is all of these goddesses um, they were either labeled as fertility goddess or uh, sexual sex worker or the wife of or the daughter of it was never like, oh, yeah, this is a priestess or this is a goddess, you know, and to never forget that the history, the ancient history uh, was written with with those lenses, you know, and mm -hmm. we cannot 
change it. But I'm glad to know also that I was not the only person who heard that ludicrous idea. Mm -hmm. And sorry, Jason, I didn't mean to hurt your heart, but. Uh, Arthur Evans was very sloppy, though. He was the one who excavated what we call Gnosis, the palace of Gnosis. Um, so, I mean, there are people who are worried about what he did. And when you go to Gnosis and you walk through it, they'll be like, Arthur Evans thought this was a throne room. No, it was a bathroom. You know, like he was very, very wrong about a lot of things. And he also sort of dignified the palace there at Gnosis. He, he like painted it and stuff. And most scholars today would be horrified by the idea that you were repainting something, trying to recreate a fresco from, you know, 4,000 years ago or longer than that. So yeah, people are people are right to be wary of him, but you know, there's more than one of those snake goddess statues, and you can see them at the museum in, yeah. in Crete. Yeah. And you know, Jason and I were aware of, you know, the the history that was written with the that kind of a mental frame. And so we did try to get the most recent sources of knowledge and the, you know, academic papers or books and uh, to, to avoid that kind of lens to view things through. So, um, you know, even I brought up one thing, I was like, Hey, we, I'll use this in this passage. And Jason was like, you know, that's outdated. We should find something else. Like, okay. So I mean, more money. part of this was challenging <laughs> each other to question the material, even from the 1960s. Um, so I think that was when that <laughs> my source was from, and um, and, and it's it's a good thing, to, you know, to have somebody who will uh, give you fresh eyes upon your research. Mm -hmm. We both use that book too. I think it, I think that's the Twelve Olympians, right? I, th I think that's the old one. I think that's the oldest one we used. And there's actually a note in the bibliography about we're really sorry we used this old book, but we're not made of money, and we both owned it or something like that. Yeah, we got a lot of other resources too. Though. Yeah, and there was like if things contradicted this we left it out but and, yeah. you know it's we're always telling history and the modern story of history based on the most accurate information that we have at the time so there's a caveat about the book of course absolutely there is something else that is very important i mean i have so many questions i'm looking at the time uh so many questions laura hurry up the personal gnosis you guys touch into it so beautifully and with such grace uh because that's one another thing that modern uh, pagans and, and witches you know like oh that works for you or that's what they tell you or that's you, you know and it's so dismissed and i'm going to give you a little example i work with mercury i did not ask i was told um work for him and everywhere you read about Mercury, he loves plants and he loves climbing plants. And you have to have plants near Mercury because that's how you show your devotion. And I had this huge climbing plant, a vine that was covering the whole of my window. So that's where I set up the altar. Within days, the plant was dead. Then I bought a fern, killed it. Then I bought a spider plant. You can walk on top of a spider plant and nothing happened to it. It will keep having babies. No. The only thing that I could put on that Mercury altar are fresh flowers. Wow. That's my gnosis, right? Mm -hmm. And I know scholars or people who, you know, write books will be like, ah, oh, no, Laura, you're crazy. 
how do we do we need validation from our personal nurses or how do we go about it without it being psychosis psychosis yeah well um i did write a book about intuitive witchcraft and i really believe in personal gnosis whether it's verified or not because it may not be relevant to everybody but it's relevant to you and i think talking about it in that context is the most valid way to discuss it and i think that if you think it's valid if you had these experiences then i believe you it doesn't have to be my truth you know maybe my mercury altar is fine with the plants. I don't have one, but I'm just, it's a hypothetical statement, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that I, I believe you and I respect your, what you believe to be true as well. That's where I, that's where I, how I think about it, all of it. That, that's so easy. You, you made it, a, you made it sound like it's almost logical and respectful. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it should be ideally it should be that way jason what just what's your take on that wasn't every attribute of the gods at one point someone's personal gnosis right it all has to start somewhere i think the problem is is when people sort of speak in absolutes like if pan came up to me and said jason did you know that i'm also the god of sweaters if i started telling people that pan was the god of sweaters maybe that might be a little weird but I could tell the story that Pan came up to me and said he was the god of sweaters. And maybe if a hundred other people said the same thing, then maybe we would kind of add that to his list of attributes. One of the things about the Greek gods, and I think this is really beautiful, is that there were a lot of different gods that were the same god. Like they all had names after their names, like denoting like a specific place or a specific thing that they did. So the gods could appear in lots of different ways. When someone has a personal experience with the gods, you know, who's to say that's just not a specific way tailored to that devotee? And mm -hmm. people love to talk about agency with the gods. And this is something in like paganism as a whole. Well, the gods have agency. And then when agency slaps them across the face, they go, well, that contradicts ancient myth. And I'm like, well, 5,000 people are doing it. I mean, that would suggest that the god is pretty happy with it, right? You know? So I think that deity evolves just like we evolve. And I was going to say, why, why wouldn't gods evolve with the humanity that worships them? And if you look at the history of the gods in the ancient world, they evolved. They weren't the same the whole way through. Apollo wasn't originally the god of the sun and eventually kind of becomes the god of the sun. And Helios has like a really secondary role all of a sudden instead of a bigger role and they they gain attributes, they lose attributes, new gods come along, absorb some of their functions. You know, it's a continual process of change and evolution. And then, but there are some people who think, well, this is how they were worshiped in Athens in the year 400 BCE, we must stop now. And that's, that's not how it works. Yeah, um, one thing I say in my part of the introduction is that we do know quite a bit about the practices that happened in Athens and Sparta and Thebes, but not so much in the country. And we don't know a lot about what women practice and other people, um, like uh, people who were slaves of a household, people who uh, lived in a country or just outside of the major cities. So uh, people who were more poor too, because their history wasn't written. So we do have some assumptions. We state that there are assumptions in the book, but 
uh, I think that they would have observed things differently. They would have seen things differently, practiced things differently. And we do want to honor all the different perspectives when it comes to um, the historical people and modern interpretations as well. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I like to mention, um, and I, I would like you all to mention about the contributors, the other folks that you invited to write either um, practice or personal analysis, et cetera. How was that process? And I don't know if you want to mention some of them. I wouldn't want to leave them out, but I'd leave that up to you. So when we were putting the book together and discussing it and thinking, wow, this is going to be a really long book, my thought was, why don't we get other people to write parts of it for us and then not pay them? And that's how we got all of these contributors because it's so many less words that I have to write. We also just wanted someone who had an honest, good experience with them and knew more about them. I mean, it's more what what Estrella is saying than what I'm saying. (laughs) For those who don't detect sarcasm, yeah. Because I was like, oh, uh, Hades, I don't work with Hades. Uh, We can find someone who does, hopefully. And there are um, guest passages on Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, 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 I don't know, Apollo, Artemis, uh, Aphrodite, Hestia, one of my favorite as well, Persephone, Hecate, Pan, uh, Gaia, and so much more. Um, Thank you for coming today to the show. To talk about this book, this book is going to be out in a few days. Uh, thank you for giving the exclusive to Lunatic Monday as per usual. Thank you, thank you. I feel like I have a huge chip on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And before we go with the uh, nonsensical question of where you can get the book, um, where are you guys going to be presenting? Are there other interviews? Or is there a tour? What's happening? Uh, it's getting colder. So what's going on with y'all? There is going to be a small tour, right? We're doing a small tour. We wanted to launch the book together. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to Ohio in December from California because I'm apparently a masochist or something. I don't know. But we're going to be at Witch Lab in Columbus, Ohio on December 8th and 9th. And we're both going to be, and 10th in the afternoon, we're going to be doing workshops. We're going to be doing a ritual for Aphrodite and Dionysus with a little bit of a Saturnalia twist on Thursday night. And that'll be fun. And we're both going to teach classes. And then on December 10th, we're going to be at the Buckland Museum in Cleveland, Ohio. So it's our little mini book launch tour. It's very, it's very exciting. I'm really thrilled about it. You can see my, you, the two of you can see my smile. Everyone else just has to imagine it, but it's very big. (laughs) I'm very excited. Yeah, it is very exciting to go on a book tour. I've only ever published books uh, with Llewellyn in the pandemic. So it's it's an actual excuse to get out and meet people and say hello. And we think these workshops and rituals are going to be just great. I oh, am yeah. so very happy to, to hear that you're going to be um, at the Buckland Museum as well. And you heard her here first, people. So don't forget, this is where you get your exclusives here at Lunatic Mondays. Um. Now here comes the question to kill me. Where can people get the book? 
Yeah, wherever books are sold, really. I, I advocate for local indie bookstores or Llewellyn.com. Of course, it's available on Amazon. Pre-orders are being accepted right now. Jason and I are both selling pre-orders right now. I think, Jason, you have a few more. Oh, I'm done. I'm yeah, done. Okay. Well, if you want a book signed by both me and Jason, I'm coordinating that. So go to my webpage, astreataylor.com and look at my books for sale there. And you can pre-order that. And I will ship that out with both of our signatures on it. That is wonderful. Please do that. And um, is there something that I should have asked you about this book? And I, I haven't yet. I was glad that you didn't ask me about the pan masturbation ritual, because I thought that you were going to say, hey, this is the first thing that I flipped to. And all I said to myself was, oh, my God, Jason, you know, but you didn't say that. Instead, you flipped to Athena first. And for that, I'm really thankful. <laughs> and you no, know, we have an audio book coming out too. And as Jason mentioned, somebody has to read that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's going to be so funny. <laughs> I can't so who's, doing, who's, doing the, who's doing the audio book? Oh, my God. Cantor Audio. It's, uh, uh, we don't know her, but uh, we, we, we hope it's a good one. So, uh, Estrella, is there anything I haven't asked about this book that I should have and escaped me? Um, no, I don't. I think that you covered a lot of ground. I think the one thing that I'd like to mention is that, um, as someone pointed out today when I was talking about it, they said, is it gods and goddesses? And I said, yes, <laughs> it's gods and goddesses. It's the plural. Um and we cover not only all of the Olympians, but a lot of the Titans, a lot of the primordial forces. We even touch upon some of the Roman deities. We have um, a whole section about how to do a Greek ritual, traditional Greek style ritual, and then a Greek style spell as well. And then uh, Jason wrote up a calendar of holidays which I think is really interesting too. They can help you inspire some of the magical practices you may want to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I just noticed they like changed my masturbation ritual to a personal sexual ritual. Like <laughs> apparently like Llewellyn was censoring my ritual. I didn't even notice that until now. I was like flipping through the book because I thought you. Laura was going to ask me to read that part out loud for her show. No, I'm not going to ask you to read that part out loud. <laughs> but thank you very much for offering and thank you very much for pointing that out that, yes, is gods and goddesses. In case by now you haven't heard us talk so much about Athena, yes, it's about gods and goddesses. Yeah. That's the plural. And, and I understand why people have that um, curiosity, because it says gods, but that's why you use for plural people. Come on. Yeah. Um, there's, also some, there's also some non-binary Greek uh -huh. deities. And we Thank touch you. on those. We touch on them in the book too. I was that's some of my favorite parts. Um, yeah. The primordial forces, especially. Yeah, that is wonderful. Thank you so much. I would like to remind the audience before we go. Uh, obviously, we're gonna have some music at the end of the show, and yes, obviously, it's gonna be a song for Athena. But um, stay tuned for that. But also to remind you all about the changes that are coming for Lunatic Mondays, Lunas Lunaticos. Starting on January, Lunes Lunaticos is no more. It will be only Lunatic Mondays, and we will have two shows per month. Um, 
Paganos del Mundo stays the way it is with a show every Saturday. Um, we have Blue Marble on the third Friday of the month with uh, Charlotte Bear. And we have Circle Talk the first and third Tuesday of the month with Deborah Rose. We have Nature Mystic with Selena Fox on Sundays and some other surprises that are coming up with Selena Fox and maybe other shows. I don't know. I can tell you just yet. But anyway, please go to uh, circlesanctuary.org and drop the menu and look into CSMP, the Circle Sanctuary Network podcast, where you can listen to over 800 hours of shows that are being produced for your enjoyment. You can download, listen, and share. And obviously, you can listen to us on any of all your other podcasts, um, reproducing houses, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you, Jason, very, very much for almost behaving on the show today <laughs> and for being here. I thought we did it until we did not. I Thank failed you, so you at the end, didn't I? I failed you at the end. You know I love you. <laughs> Thank you, Estrella, for being here and putting up with me and my goofy accent. But uh, it's been my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. The first of many, I hope. Yeah. And, and to both of you, all I have to say is thank you, thank you, thank you. People, buy the book. And I'll leave you all the microphone to say goodbye to your audience. So ladies first, of course. And then, Jason, we will end the show with your goodbye. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. If you have any questions, you know, you can always hit us up on social media. We are pretty approachable. And, um, you know, this is just a topic we love so much. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And I hope you enjoy the book. This was just a great book to write. And the whole experience with Estrella was fabulous. And we both love the Greek gods so much. And I think it really shows in the book. And if you pick it up, we really hope that you like it. And we'll see you both. We'll see all of you listening online somewhere. It really shows. It really shows how much you love the Greek gods and goddesses. Thank you. And yes. remember the name of the book, Modern Witchcraft with the Greek Gods by Jason Mankey and Astrea Taylor. My name is Laura Gonzalez. I'd like to say goodnight with, to you with some music.
And thank you so much to Astrea and Jason for being on the show tonight. And until we meet again, never forget that you are loved. Goodbye.